Movie Journey podcast where we break down one movie a week from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson and hello, hello, I'm at a place called Vertigo. <laughs> I'm Dean Jeffrey and I'm definitely not too old to be playing this part of the podcaster. And today we'll be breaking down the 1958 Alfred Hitchcock classic Vertigo. Dean, it's been a while since our last podcast so let me just say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year and Happy Birthday as well. Thank you. Yeah, I believe you turned 30. Yes, yeah. j- did just turn 30 this week, so no, big milestone, and uh, yeah, definitely don't feel like I'm in my 30s yet, but uh, time will uh, no doubt take care of that. We did celebrate in style, had a couple of bevies at yours. A few bevies, big night, big yeah. night. Uh, the police end up getting involved. Shh. <laughs> oh yeah, we keep, keep that under wraps. We just keep that under wraps. We're responsible adults now. <laughs> How was your Christmas anyway? Yeah, no, really good, you know, same old with the family. Yeah. Happy days, what about you? Yeah, we ended up hosting this year. We had both sides of the family down to our joint. Actually went quite well, quite smooth, and now we don't have to do it for four years, so we're happy with that. Very good. Yeah, we hosted too, but it's only small at ours, so it's a very relaxing day, which is what I like. That's good. We also had a a nice little New Year's Eve together as well, had a couple of drinks with family and friends. New Year's at the Hendersons. Yep, it was a good night. It was good. Yeah, went down to the beach and watched the fireworks. It was a it's a good good night. Had by all. Yes. So be sure to stick around after our Vertigo breakdown, where we'll be talking about a bunch of other films we've seen over this break, including both Golden Globe motion picture winners, three billboards across Ebbing, Missouri, and Lady Bird. And if you'd like to follow along on this journey, then please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes and most other podcast apps on iOS and Android. Just search for IMDb Journey or click on the links in the show notes. And if you really like us, we would appreciate it if you would give us a good rating and review to help us get our name out there. Because we're, you know, we're still a young podcast and we want to get uh, some mentions here. We'd like to expand our, our listener. Yeah, our listenership for sure. The more people that listen, the uh, the better it goes. The more reviews, the more feedback we get, the better this can be. Yeah, and we're also out there on social media too. You can follow us on Twitter at IMDB Journey and on our letterbox page as well. Just search for IMDB Journey there too. We also have links to our personal pages on there too if you want to follow us there as well. Okay, let's take a quick look at the IMDB Top 250. It's been a few weeks since we last chatted, so what changes has there been? Yeah, this might be a little bit longer of a chat than last time. There has been a couple of different changes. How's um, Coco tracking? Coco has gone down a little bit from last time. It was at 30. It's just dropped down to 37 now, so not too much over a couple of weeks, but there's you know, still enough to warrant a notice. It's still very high. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We also see that Spirited Away and Saving Private Ryan actually traded spots from 28 to 29, so that's noticeable because it's you know it's quite high up. Those yep. those don't change that often. Yep. Also see that uh, Grave of the Fireflies and The Lives of Others traded spots. Witness for the prosecution took over Old Boy. Braveheart moved over Return of the Jedi, and Your Name moved over Requiem for a Dream. That's the changes in the top 100. There, we've also seen some dips and some ads. Did from you say Your Name. Your Name. As in call me by? No, as in your name. Ah, your name. Yeah. We've also seen Blade Runner 2049 drop from number 70 to number 109 over the last couple of weeks, as well as another 2017 film, Dunkirk, has dropped again. It's gone from <laughs> 121 down to 198. So that is dropping more and more as the weeks oh, go on. That's massive. Yeah. 198. Yeah, big, big drop. That could be out of it in a month or so. Who knows? That's the way it's going. Let's see, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri has entered the list at 129. We also see There Will Be Blood has moved up from 171 to 167, so that's a couple of spots up. 
And two other drops from movies from last year and the year before. We see La La Land go down from 187 to 192. Dean's giving me a grimace there. He doesn't like that. I do love La La Land. We also see Logan go from 188 to 193. So a couple of drops there. Thor Ragnarok has also gone down from 195 to 212. No surprises there. And heading down at the bottom there, we see that The Force Awakens has actually been taken out of the 250 now. It was at 231, but it has dropped out. Wow. As well as Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl is out. I guess all these last Jedi haters are going in and voicing their <laughs> frustration by giving Taking Force Awakens <laughs> bad rating. <laughs> we also saw that PK has gone out of the top 250 and Three Colors Red, which came in on our last review, has dropped back out. And in its, in its place is Castle in the Sky and wrapping up the top 250 at number 250 right now is Gangs of Wasipa. So close. So close. Let's hope we never have to talk about that movie. I would really like to talk about that movie. What? I would love for you, you to see it. You want to watch it again? I would love to watch it again. I'd love to watch it again and I'd love for you to watch it. We'll see. Just a warning, we will be spoiling Vertigo from the jump, so if you haven't seen it, please go and watch it and come back and give us a listen. Yeah, first of all, what are you doing? What are you coming in here into a Vertigo podcast not having watched it? Maybe they're unsure if they would like it and want to you know, see what we think of it. How about, how about you guys go watch it? And then come back and listen to our breakdown. (laughs) So, without further ado, here is our breakdown of Vertigo. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror. As created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. Starring James Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Belgettis, and Tom Helmore, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It was nominated for two Oscars at the time, one for Best Art and Set Decoration, and one for Best Sound. Didn't win either. Can you just say one? Oh, and one nominee for Best Sound. Okay. Yeah, that was confusing. (laughs) (laughs) And with an 8.4 rating of nearly 300,000 reviews on IMDb, it is sitting at number 73 on the top 250 at the moment. And it's the third highest rated Hitchcock film below Psycho and Rear Window. Now, this film was actually poorly received by uh, US critics on its release. Hitchcock was pretty bitter at the critical and commercial failure of this film back in 1958. He actually blamed the film's failure on a 50-year-old James Stewart looking too old to play a convincing love interest for the then 25-year-old Kim Novak. Yeah. The film was unavailable for decades because its rights were bought back by Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter. It was re-released in theatres around 1984 after a 30-year absence and is now hailed as Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece, being placed on multiple AFI lists, even making the uh, number one spot in 2007, also taking number one spot on Sight and Sound's Greatest Movies of All Time list, in 2012, which had previously been held by Citizen Kane since 1962. Yeah, so why don't we get into finding out if we think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Now, something we're going to be doing a little different here from now on, we decided that we're not going to be uh, mentioning a scene and then going into breaking it down and going on like that. So what we're going to do is we're going to give a plot summary uh, now about the whole movie, and then we're going to just talk about our opinions and what we thought during the movie after that. So, let's get into the plot summary for Vertigo. Police detective John Scotty Ferguson, played by James Stewart, 
is asked by an old college friend, Gavin Elster, if he would have a look into his wife Madeline, played by Kim Novak's odd behaviour. He's taken to believe that she is the reincarnation of a woman named Carla de Valdez, who died many years ago, and is concerned about her sanity. Scotty follows her and rescues her from an apparent suicide attempt when she jumps into San Francisco Bay. He gets to know her, and they soon fall in love. They go to an old mission church, but he is unable to stop her from climbing to the top of the steeple due to his vertigo, where she jumps to her death. A subsequent inquiry finds that she committed suicide, but faults Scotty for not stopping her in the first place. Several months later, after being in a catatonic state, he meets Judy Barton, a woman who is the spitting image of Madeline. He can't explain it, but she is identical to the woman who died. He tries to remake her into Madeline's image by getting her to dye her hair and wear the same type of clothes. He soon begins to realise, however, that he has been duped and was a pawn in a complex piece of theatre that was meant to end in tragedy. So the first thing I noticed when this movie opened up was the Vista Vision, the big black and white Paramount Vista Vision. And you, could, you probably would think back in the 50s that that would have been glorious to look at on the screen there. Probably not so much these days, but... No, not so much at all. It stinks of really old movie. <laughs> in 1958, it would have been revolutionary. Wow! Are you gonna Are you gonna be looking at this movie with eyes from today? Well, they're the only eyes I have. But you, <laughs> I can please see, tell me I, what I eyes you're. Your, I can see please your, tell me what eyes you're looking at. I'm this looking movie at it through. from a movie that was made in the 50s, designed for people from the 50s. Yeah, yeah. You take it with that. I can tell you're really gonna shit on this movie. What? <laughs> just <laughs> from that, that, just from that alone, I can see you're really gonna have a hard time with this film. <laughs> oh, dearie me. So I did also like the the intro sequence as well. It, got very, it reminded me very much of a James Bond movie title sequence, which I actually think this, that's where they got this from. With all, you know how it shows the, the face of Kim Novak and it zooms in into her eye with the spiral. Did this come out after James Bond? No, this was done f- uh, four years before a James Bond film. Oh, so Doc- you're saying James Bond, you, Dr. No took off this, you reckon? I reckon. Well, I reckon this uh, either, it took, either it ripped it off or it uh, took uh, homage to it. Homage. Yeah. Homage. That's right. So I just want to talk about the use of spirals in this film. And it starts straight away with the spiral that that comes into the eye uh, mm. with, the, with the vertigo yep, that comes yep, up. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's it's very indicative of of vertigo. Like the use of the spiral from from the shot of the eye right here to the way the cop is sprawled out in a spiral like shape when he lands on the ground. Yep. Uh, the staircase. Spiral staircase. You can even say that the film itself is kind of a spiral where you get Scotty that falls in love with Madeline, loses her to the de- loses her to death, and then falls in love with Madeline slash Judy again, and then loses her to death again. It just continuously goes around. This this whole film is mm. like. So the like, question is, what happens at the end of the movie? Pitch us a Vertigo two. Go. Does there need to be a Vertigo 2? Not everything needs to have a sequel, Dean. Well, I'll just say, like, if we want to really emphasise this spiral, maybe maybe two repetitions isn't enough of this story. You, you don't have a lot to say, do you? <laughs> you have not got a lot to say. This. You, could, you could really... I'm just going to riff this whole podcast. <laughs> you didn't really know what to do with this movie, did you? Yeah, I, str- I, st- I did struggle with this movie a bit. I, um... Yeah, I mean, I I've, I feel dumb in saying it, but I'm watching it, I just I finished. And I was like, this is such a simple film. Like, and you look at like I've read a lot of reviews on it, and you see how highly it's regarded. I just don't see it. I really don't. Sounds like you just got into your final thoughts. Well, maybe we did warn for spoilers. All right, they're all over the place in <laughs> we this did, one. We didn't warn for no discussion. <laughs> I want to talk about the the vertigo shot that Hitchcock basically. Invented. Invented. Well, it wasn't so much him. 
it was uh, the uncredited se- the uncredited second unit cameraman whose name was Ermin Roberts. He actually invented the famous zoom out and zoom in uh, shot that they do a couple of times in here, which is obviously known as the vertigo shot now hmm. to use to convey the sense of vertigo. Uh, the the view down the stairwell, just those that one shot, which they used, re- they repeatedly used that a couple of times. So they didn't every time you see that it wasn't a different shot; it was the same shot. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it cost nineteen thousand dollars back in that day for just a couple of seconds yeah, of screen that's time. That's massive. Yeah, it is. I didn't but, actually uh, go and get the um, <laughs> the inflated price of that this time. Sorry, really? I thought you lazy. <laughs> he actually wanted to use that vertigo shot in his film Rebecca. But um, the lack of technology back then, he couldn't do it. It's actually inspired by him when Hitchcock fainted during a party, and that's how he felt. He thought that would be the the way we could use the the look of it. Yeah, it's very odd. Personally, when I'm fainting, I'm not thinking about what I'm seeing and trying to, you know, think of ways I can capture it later on in my movies. Well, you're not a director. What you you're not thinking how to capture it in your movies? Well, that's true. What movies? The movies in my head. (laughs) I don't want to see those. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, the the vertigo shot was actually used with the stairs and that. It was actually done with miniatures and it was laid on its side because they couldn't do it vertically. Do you know how they do the shot? Yeah, they pull back on the camera while zooming in on the lens. It's very clever. Is it that way or is it they move the camera forward while zooming out on the lens? Yeah, it's one of them and yeah. then they might reverse it to the other one. Maybe. And then maybe they go back to that one as well in a kind of spiral motion. Oh, very say. good. good. <laughs> what are you talking about? Did you notice the Hitchcock cameo in the film? Yes. He's often talked about walking past with a musical instrument case. Yeah, it was a... But that's uh, not the case. No musical instrument would fit in that case, apparently. <laughs> it's a um, a mask, a costume mask. Oh, was it? Hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Yeah, see? You do have some interesting stuff to talk I about I told you. <laughs> you doubted me. I like the, the line that comes up here when Gavin and Scotty are talking, where Gavin's asking him to follow Madeline. When he says, Scotty, do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? No. Well, this appears to happen in the first half, but it does turn out to be false. It does end up actually happening for Scotty, who is quite quite sceptical at this point that, he, that it wouldn't happen. But it does turn out to happen to him. As he walks around San Francisco after Madeline's death... He keeps seeing other women as Madeline, mm. and when he meets Judy, he's certain for sure that he has found her. That this, you know, this ghost has taken possession of, the, of this woman. It also actually does happen to Judy in a way too, because the Madeline who she is impersonating now comes back to haunt her when Scotty essentially turns her into Madeline, and eventually uh, Judy does lose herself to a kind of possession of a dead woman. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about the use of color in this film, mm. in particularly the color green is used nauseam almost. Like it's it's so it's so loud and obvious with the green. Like when what when Scotty think? when Scotty first sees Madeline in the restaurant. So you're gonna call her Madeline, I'm gonna call her Madeline. Madeline, Madeline. I think either's right. Yeah, either's fine. Anyway, when Scotty first sees Madeline <laughs> now now I'm gonna be self conscious of Madeline. Oh I knew it. You knew you just when come, Scotty, come to the dark side. Yeah, when Scotty <laughs> when Scotty first sees Madeline, um Everyone in this restaurant is wearing greys or blacks, and she stands out in this bright green dress with a green shawl on as well. And I, I started making notes about the green, and once I once I got that first one and started looking for the green, it's everywhere. Did like, you, did was green the only colour you were looking for? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I 
I went deep into this color thing. I felt I felt like green was the most obvious one. Green, and especially especially in the scene where they're he uh, Scotty has taken Madeline back to his apartment after attempted suicide. Mm. Everything in his apartment is green. Everything. What do you think that represents? Well, I think it represents his growing obsession. Right, and when every time they use this green, you can see that he is obsessed with you know like when it, when he's in the apartment and he's starting to fall in love with it. His entire world is green in that moment. Hmm. And moving later on in the movie, when the transformation that he's made of Judy is complete and she appears out of the bathroom, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like it's like a green fog she comes out of. It's incredible. Like it's it's like green is not like a no. I, I I agree with you completely here. I, I I find that the green is obviously there's there's a lot of different colours that are used very differently in this film. Like Obviously, the green is for Madeline. Like any time you're looking at Madeline, yeah. it's it's mostly green. Yeah. What I've noticed is with Scotty, it's red. Like there are scenes where, like you know, like in that restaurant scene, this is where I started to notice it. Yeah. The red, that, that, that vibrant red walls in that yeah. restaurant, just surrounding. Like it's kind of like Scotty is surrounding Madeline at the point. He's starting to, you know, not he's not not starting to stalk her yet, but he's he's investigating her. He's yeah. surrounding her at every point. Like, and that's not the only two characters here. Like. So you got Scotty is the color red. Uh, you know, Madeline is obviously green. I noticed that Midge is yellow. Classic Midge. Classic Midge. The set, like the scene after the rooftop where you see Midge and Scotty in her apartment. Her apartment is yellow. Yep. She's wearing yellow. Yep. Her furniture is yellow, except for the couch that Scotty's sitting on, which is red. And mm. he is wearing a kind of a dark red suit as well. And yeah, I've also, like I've already talked about the restaurant where you know you've got the walls that are red and. Madeline sitting in the with the You're green. You're right. You have already talked about that. You also talked about it. We see that Madeline, Madeline drives a green car around as well. Yep. Picked up on that. The scene at the grave as well is like it's obviously in a in a bushy it's area outside. So, so it's very green, but it's also that that cloudy green that you get when she when the Judy character comes out dressed as Madeline. Finally, it's it's she's covered in green there, but it's like a foggy green. And this whole scene at the graveyard mm. is very ghost like, like the, the the foggy green. Yeah. Yeah. Very spiritual, eerie. I guess. Yeah, eerie as well. Also, when they go to the forest and they talk about this giant tree that would just keep on living, right? Obviously, a tree's green, but it's such it's such an important moment for Madeline or Judy, whoever you want to talk about it, whoever you want to say. But it's such an important moment because she's dealing with her own mortality and what she wants to do with her life or death. And she's seen this tree that will never die. And it obviously has a massive impact on her. And it causes her to run away. To run away from her problems, from her life. You know, metaphorically. Yeah, they actually mention... All the people who've been born and have died when the trees were not living. Their true name is Sequoia's Hippovirons. Always green, ever living. I don't like them. Why? Knowing I have to die. So while that looks like Madeline is conflicted with her drive to suicide and, and a fear of death at the same time, it's actually I actually think that it's Judy speaking there, not Madeline on that last line where you know no, I don't I don't like it knowing I have to die. It's it's here that Scotty and Madeline profess their love for each other, but Judy within within Madeline there realizes that once she fakes her, her death, mm. she'll she'll never see this guy again. Yeah, yeah, and their relationship will end. So it's like she she doesn't want to She's die. She's torn. Yeah, she is torn. What do you think about when she? When Scotty's first following Madeline around and she does jump in the river, do you think she was trying to kill herself then? No, this is all staged. This is this is to, they want. Okay. They want her. Yeah, that, they want that's what I thought to get too. Close. Was, yeah. 
I just want to get. I want. I'm not finished with the car. This color thing is. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. I've well, I'll get to it. All right. Notes. And even the the tight gray suit that Madeline wears at the start when he's following around everywhere. She's always got this very bland suit on, and it's very restrictive. It's very tight. And then when she when she does sort of break free of this Madeline role, she she goes into the green again. You yeah. Know? And then when he transforms her back at the end. She goes back into the grey. Yeah, back to the Madeline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you did. I know you mentioned when after she jumps in the river and he brings her back to her house. All the green, like he's he's now wearing the green. Mm. He's you know her, his infatuation with her has started here. But you also notice when she's um, laying in the bed, he hands her a red robe to put on, mm. and she puts it on, sort of signifying that Ownership. I I am starting. No, no, no. I think it signifies that she's starting to fall for him. Now he's wearing the green. She's wearing the red. They're both falling for each other. Mm. And you also see you also you also start to see Midge when she's trying to fulfil Scotty's fantasies. You know that scene when she she put, paints the portrait. So that is a very oh, creepy scene. That was so weird. But you see in that scene, she's start, she dresses in red. She's sitting there in red, like she wants to, you know, fulfil his fantasies. Yeah, and I it was such a creepy picture. I don't really understand the character of Midge. I've got to say, because in the very first scene with her, right after the sort of prologue, if you will where he falls and he's sort of getting nursed back by her. Hmm. Like, he's he's sort of making moves on her, saying that, you know, we were engaged, um, do you want to go on date again, do all this? He and did, she's, hey, she's know, having no bar of it, though. You know, like, how, how do you get away with saying... How's your love life, Midge? <laughs> In this day and age. That is just, oh. that is, that's like a... You're yeah. on you're on blast. You're on social media. For there is me. so much in this film that would not fly. Oh, 50s film like that would not fly in this day and nah. age. Uh, if you want to talk about Midge, I'd like to talk about Midge. Midge for me, like I was, I was really confused when I saw it. I wasn't sure of the purpose of Midge when I watched it. Yeah, and she has a decent amount of screen time. Mm. Yeah, she and plays quite a you, role. Even when you see her sort of point of view when she's following Scotty, no, Madeline, both, isn't it? Is it both? She when she's both. yeah, when she's following them around, like that's that's a big scene. Yeah, like she gets her point of view in this movie, and I'm not sure where it goes. So I, she she does play quite a role in the film, like for the first half, and then she she's out of it after the the senate. What is it? What is it? Sanitarium? The the, the psych ward? The hospital? The San Juan Batista? That's not no, not that one. <laughs> Sorry, I just call I just like saying it. Yeah. Let's call it the hospital. <laughs> I think Hitchcock wants you to compare the two. Women, the two main women here, Midge and Madeline, uh, and it's really no comparison. I well, must say. well, that's the thing. You take the use of the conflicting colours into it as well. You got Madeline, who represents this kind of romantic ideal, and you get Midge, who's the complete opposite. Like Midge is, she's practical. Mm. She's 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 competent. She's everyday. And she's, car. she's realistic. She's she's realistic, <laughs> and <laughs> and throughout the film, she she tries to keep Scotty's feet on the ground. You see her try to change Scotty's mind about giving up his detective job and he and she works on helping him overcome his acrophobia mm. when he starts to trail Madeline she follows him as well she talks to Scotty about the case and tries to show how ridiculous and unreal the whole thing is and he does he is reluctant to believe her and that final shot of Midge you get walking down the hallway of the hospital like it's basically failing to bring Scotty out of his catatonic state and back to reality just shows how he's firmly in this world of illusion that he's living in after this, and he's out of he's out of reach of the real world. Out of reach of the real world. Midge is the reality. She's the real world, and for her to disappear halfway through this film just shows how far down the rabbit hole Scotty's gone. Mm. 
And I like it how that she disappears after this. Like, you never see her, never see her again because he's just so far gone after yep. that. So I feel like Midge does play a crucial role in this for the half time that she has. Mm. It took me a little bit to think about it because when I first saw it, I'm like, why do we even care about this person? But she's... She's the she's the grounded reality. Yeah, in, I don't think we care about her. It's more just what she represents in Scotty's life yeah, and his story. Yeah. I just want to continue on the colour theme as well here because you see, especially in that dream sequence that Scotty has, that really bizarre flowers, head spinning. Bizarre is an understatement. Like It came from nowhere that dream sequence. But you see, like the the colours in that thing is it's it's just flashing back and back mm. and forth on green and red and just covered in all this in all this green and red. It's this mix of uh, like I guess obsession crossed with you know his his reality is disappearing like like what I just said before and I feel like there's there's actually one other color that I picked up on a lot and that's the color of blue which I'm pretty sure stand stood for the truth like reality like the there are times where he or, said yellow was reality no yellow is midge who represents reality yeah but listen to what I'm saying when it gets what to do you think I'm doing? with the blue especially in the hospital scene when He's gone catatonic and that he's wearing blue and now Midge is wearing blue too. The scenes where Scotty and Madeline, they're not they're not playing a part or anything. Everyone like in the in the courtroom scene, they're all wearing blue. Blue is like the let's bring it back to the real life. And I feel like those those four colours, the yellow, especially the red and the green, and the blue, they are used meticulously with Hitchcock in all this and, and even with the with continuing with the green, like you said, with Later on in the film with Judy, how she's wearing the green and the reveal of Judy becoming Madeline with that green fade over. You also yeah. get that as well when he's trying to convince her to change into Madeline. You see the silhouette of Judy that they use a, a couple of times here with the with the side view. Mm. It's it's a dark, it's just a complete black silhouette of Judy with the green from the the neon light in the background, like yeah. surrounding her. Like it hasn't got it hasn't engulfed her yet. It's all around her. It's it's her reluctance to to change into Madeline for Scotty yet. And then, like you said, when she does finally give in and change into Madeline, the green covers her. It, in, it engulfs her. Yeah. That it is, it is, she's finally Madeline again, I guess. So, yeah, love, love the use of colour in this film. It's fantastic. Just want to quickly talk about the score in this film as well. I thought it was quite enjoyable. It was a nice romantic tone with uh, some changes and, and definitely some swirls when the relationship started to go a little wonky in certain parts of the movie, especially in, in the very... St- like that restaurant scene where you see the back and forth cuts between Madeline and Scotty where Scotty's having a quick peek at her but then walks away when she turns to notice him thought the music there like the heart the the lead up into the music especially when they they share their first kiss on the beach all that huge leads up and the changes in tone work well with the music really really good score here yeah I particularly really like the music in the scene where there's a big reveal of what has actually happened yeah and as you say, it just builds and builds and builds on, on what's there. And I thought it was really, really quite um, effective. Yeah, very effective. Yeah. I, one thing that kind of took me out of the film a little bit was when Scotty's following Madeline around in the car. Very oh. obvious green screen. Like back, back in those, those 50s oh, days. Oh, really? Yeah, just you sit, you just sit, you can so tell that he's just sitting in a, in a yeah, studio you know, lot on the car and the, yeah. and the screen in the back. Okay, hold on, hold on. You know what the issue is, don't you? No. You're watching it with 2018 eyes, all right? You got to stop doing that and start thinking about how it would have looked the in the problem 50s. is, though, I'm not shitting on this film. <laughs> I'm not shitting on it. You you started this this podcast saying, "Oh man, I don't want to talk about this film. I've just got nothing. How how do I watch this 50s film?" This is the one thing that took me out of it a little bit. No, 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 no. 
It's funny because when you brought that up and you said, yeah, it's something you didn't like, I thought you were going to say what I noticed and what I was struggling to get over is that how closely he follows her. There is no, like, I know, I know, in retrospect, she's aware that he's following yeah, her. But okay, he's, such it's a, all part, he's such a he, shit detective. <laughs> like, this is actual job. This isn't just some guy who's following. He is an actual detective and he is ridiculously close Do to Do you this think woman. that maybe because he's following her and she's not recognizing him, he's like, hey, maybe I can get closer. Maybe I can get closer. If she's not picking up. What a stupid broad. Just get closer until she sees him. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, that I thought that. Like, do you th- do you think in some way that he wants her to see him? He wants to meet her. He's starting to be to starting to fall for no, her. No, it's from the get go. It is true. It is from the get go. It's from the get go. Yeah. He's so close to her, and it, yeah, it's it. Yeah, took me out. Not the um. What did you think? Of, what did you think of the following her around scene and how it went for basically ten minutes with no dialogue? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I thought it was realistic. Yeah. It was um. It wasn't like it wasn't it, slow. Even though he it was right, right up her ass. Whoa. Even even though he was following her very this closely. Is a family podcast. <laughs> Sorry for my Aussie slang. <laughs> yeah, that's how we do things here in o- Aussie land. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I really did enjoy that um, that scene of no dialogue, just following her around, following her to the different places. Yeah, I had no dramas with it. Yeah. It was good. Uh, and also in that that scene where Ma- Madeline's staring at the portrait in the the museum, Hitchcock actually spent roughly a week filming that short little scene. Because he wanted to get the lighting right, just for that small little scene, which is baffling. Because a, it's not outside, and b, <laughs> there's really no one moving in this scene. That's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm no Hitchcock, but and again, you do get that swirling reference with the the bob in the hair of the painting and the hair that she has, how it's spun around at the back of her hair. I'm not no hairdresser, but I, you know, I think I know that that's what that means. So let's talk about the hotel. Mm. I. What is with this scene? Yeah, this scene does not make any sense in retrospect. No. So, I understand that Judy, as Madeline, is... Everything she's doing is a lie. It's all a setup for him. But why is this hotel receptionist, who apparently is not in on it at all, saying she hasn't seen anyone? It's like this This scene is designed for us to, to throw us off the scent. Yeah. Like, oh, des- maybe this is real. Maybe this is a ghost. Yeah, or- it's, it's designed to you know, increase suspense and increase the mystery of it all. But the problem with that is once you go back and watch it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, like I, I tried to find out like what, what is, what does this mean? And apparently Hitchcock calls this an icebox scene where it's like, he's, he's talking like he's, he's talking it like us saying, Hey, how did she get out of that hotel? Do why do we ever find that out? Like after the movie, when we're walking home, like, Oh, what did happen there? Like what we're doing now. Hmm. And he, he calls it the icebox scene, meaning it's a kind of scene that hits you basically after you've gone home and started pulling cold chickens out of the icebox. No reply. <laughs> no, I read I read that um, Kim Novak actually asked him at one stage um, a question specifically about something in this movie. And we don't know what it is. But allegedly, Hitchcock's reply was, it's a movie, don't overthink it. Yeah. And I, I think... and. Just to go to another Hitchcock movie, North by Northwest, a lot of stuff in that movie as well doesn't make sense in retrospect. And I think it's odd because obviously Hitchcock is regarded as one of the greatest directors of all time, but there is this little thing in here that that doesn't line up. Yeah. I have seen a number of possible explanations. One is that the manager had her back turn when she went upstairs. Wow, that's deep. Yeah. Uh, Another is that the manager is actually in cahoots with... uh, 
Melanie? I think that's most likely. But she, the way she was talking and explaining the whole thing, I mean, eh, could be. The other one I, I saw was that maybe Madeline had rented another room under the, a different name and the manager wasn't lying when she said she hadn't seen Carlotta Valdez in. I, I think that maybe you could have just got rid of this whole thing. <laughs> like, unless there is a actual reason, like... Obviously, you can have th- have scenes in movies that are le- that are there for to have your own interpretation. But when I just I don't understand the relevance to it, mate. Like if it's if it's there just to just for the audience mm. to throw us off the scent, mm. then that's I, I I don't think that it warrants it to be in there. I think it should still be part, still be integral to the story, not there for the people who are watching it. It has nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I just want to quickly talk about this um, bookstore scene as well, with this little minor character. Uh, what was his name? Pop Liebel. Ah, uh, Pop. Yep. Yeah, good old Pop. Classic Pop. And I love his line that he says when he's talking about Carlotta's lover. He threw her away. You know, men could do that in those days. They had the power and the freedom. And she became the sad Carlotta. See, this whole story about Carlotta is actually playing out sort of with these characters. Mm. Like this power and freedom that he mentions is precisely what Gavin wants. And in murdering his wife, he actually does achieve this in the same way that Carlotta's lover does. And ironically, Judy, in playing the role of Madeline, possessed by Carlotta, eventually shares her fate. She too is thrown away by her lover, Gavin, once she served his needs. So I feel like this the story of Carlotta that they're, they're saying, like the pop is saying here, is, you know, foreshadowing some of the stuff that is going on here as well. So while I did think that this overall bookstore scene with this character didn't really need to be in the film. The The story of Carlotta did, and you could, you maybe, yeah, yeah. you I could th- have something I like them, re- I... like maybe Midge and Scotty reading the, reading the story instead. I think we got enough of You love Midge. <laughs> <laughs> did you say Midge? Midge. What kind of name is Midge? Sure for Marjorie. <laughs> I just call her Marjorie. No, but you want her to not be the, I think calling her Midge as opposed to Marjorie Dumbs her down a bit. Yeah, because yeah. Marjorie's a very sexy name. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how times have changed. Okay, let's talk about the twist in this movie now. Now, obviously, it doesn't happen at the end. It happens about halfway through, or a bit further than halfway. What do you think about that? I actually loved it. I love that they revealed the twist here instead of at the end of the film. I feel like if we found out about the twist at the end, it would... It'd, it'd take away from yeah, it the would, emotional impact. Yeah, it would cheapen the movie a bit. Yeah, it would. Because the movie would be a, a, then become about this twist. Yes. Instead of about, as you say, the emotional um, sort of connection between these characters and what they're going through. Yeah, the impact of Judy transforming into Madeline. Yeah. Yeah, if we just assumed that this was just some random woman doing this, there'd be no emotional attachment to her. Yeah. Uh, or much less emotional attachment. And I think also, like, it's so obvious. Like, it's not... It's so obvious that this woman is a woman from before. And really? It, yeah. It's. I mean, come on. I did, when I first saw it, I didn't even realize that it was the same actress. She she has really? these super thick eyebrows, the 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 brunette yeah, hair. Yeah, but as I, as he's changing her, you know, changing her clothes, changing her appearance, her hair, and all that, like you're going there and there. You're getting closer and closer to what it was, and the audience is going to realize it before you drop the twist later on. I don't think so. I think. The, when if we, if they don't put the twist until the end, they're going to put the twist in when Scotty notices the necklace. That that's when it happens. Mm. I feel like if you don't put the twist in here and you just follow the story of this other woman, Judy, who is being forced by now 
creepy Scotty to change her appearance and her demeanour and her behaviour and everything to this woman who... I don't think you're giving the good people of 1958 enough credit. Well, apparently Hitchcock didn't either. That's why he put the twist in the middle. No, that's not why he put the twist in the middle. I know, I know. Okay, he put the twist in the middle because he wanted it to be about suspense the whole second half, about, you know, the viewer knows. And when you're watching that, knowing that, and knowing that Scotty doesn't know that, it's, it makes it a different movie. It makes it a different experience. Yeah, I feel like if we don't know this, our perception of Scotty would be would be a lot different. Like he he does this you know this overpowering obsessive transformation of Judy. It's really it's really cringy. Like a, this is our this is our protagonist, and he and he goes he he becomes very overbearing and no like oh he's know, very aggressive. Yeah, and it's it's such a change. And he, if, he, if, if we didn't surprisingly, he's a He's kind of an arsehole for yeah. our hero of the story. Mm. He's he's not really nice at if, all. If we didn't know this twist, we th- and we thought that he was just doing this as random stranger, it would look even worse on him. Like I don't think there's any way you could shape this. If you wanted to tell this story of Scotty like this, there's no way you could shape it where he's he's doing the right thing. Mm. Here. But if you put the twist in before, at least you have like at least you have him as a somewhat victim. Yeah. At least you have him as someone who's being lied to. Yeah who can play the victim role to sort of balance out how aggressive he is. Yeah, I guess you could feel for him because this, is, the, this is actually the person who did this to him. Yeah. yeah. And you get this this interesting uh, back and forth from Judy and Scotty. If I let you change me, will that do it? I do what you tell me. Will you love me? Yes. Yes. They don't do it. They don't care anymore about me. Yeah, she's so desperate to please her man. Yeah. And I feel like this is one of the things that does not relate well in now 2018. Oh, no. Especially right right now. Oh, feminism. (laughs) Go girl power. Um, It is all about equality, obviously, as it should be, ladies and gentlemen. But I imagine if, yeah, you got a bunch of women, empowered women, to watch this now, there'd be a much different take on this film. I don't think this film would be regarded as the best woman ever now. It's just, yeah, like Scotty's behaviour would be frowned upon now. Yeah. Massively. And even when she does get her hair redone, she comes out, she's got new hair, new clothes, he immediately complains about her yeah. hairstyle. Immediately. It's not right. It's not, it's not right. right. It's like as close as you can imagine it, yeah. and he complains about it. Yeah, before this conversation, you see that Judy, she's been trying to convince Scotty to love her for her, but it becomes clear that he'll only love her as Madeline. Hmm. And Judy just wants to be accepted and loved, like you said. She's willing to delude herself and live in this Scotty's world of fantasy to hopefully achieve that. And I reckon that being the reason she decided to become Madeline for Gavin as well at the first half of the film. And this is where the mistake happens. She's she's so good at abandoning Judy and becoming Madeline hmm. that she puts this Carlotta necklace on. And when Scotty's dragging her up the bell tower at the end of the movie... She's she's no longer certain of her own identity. She's speaking as Judy and she's speaking as Madeline as, yeah. as she says to him. It's interesting, like you say, like she's she's transforming into her because he wants her to be this person that he loved, this Madeline. Madeline. <laughs> but this this she is the person, you know. What do you think would have happened if Judy had just come out and and said from the get go, "Yeah, it was me. This is what happened. Let's move on. Let's live, you know, together happily and be in love." Do you think? Because it's the do same. Think he would have become enraged like he did at the end. Maybe he would have. I mean, maybe he would have accepted it may, like, over I, time. Maybe he would have, you know, had a better re- reaction if it was from the get go. Just going back to that when he first sees her, how creepy is it? 
that he is able to just ask her all these personal questions when he first like knocks on yeah, her door, yeah. goes in there and just not berate but just fires off question after question, He's very forces forced, his yeah. forces his way into the apartment, and then like I don't know maybe again maybe this is a sign of the times, but she then agrees to have dinner with him because she's she's she loves him, she's in love with him. Yeah. You, you see that like that's what we're saying before the whole bell tower incident. She is falling for him. She's actually falling for him at, from as Judy. Mm. So when she sees him again, she's reluctant. Like she she doesn't want to do it, but she does. Yeah. It's that, funny when when she sees him again. I actually thought the acting was too good. <laughs> too good. Too good. It's too good for the audience. No, like there is not a glimmer of any recognition from her at all. Like she opens that door and. You can believe that this character has never seen him before, and that's part and of I, the reason why I should have been think, something. I didn't it think it been was something. her. I felt like right. She'd been told right. Act like you've never seen him before, but in real life, she has. You know, there was not. You need that that little little hint of recognition. I felt. Yeah, I can see your point. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. and that. So that was my take on why she's wearing the necklace because she's she's just become so engulfed in this Madeline character. She just she, that's what she was doing. She just puts it on. She doesn't even think about it. Did you have any other reason as to why she wore the necklace that he would obviously recognize? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think maybe on one level, it's the only thing she has that is is from that time, that she equates this um, thing. It would have a lot of sentimental value to her. Like she was wearing this thing at every time that, um, you know, this man that she loves and who loves her were together. And I think she was trying to really hold on to that. Also, maybe subconsciously, she wants him to know. Yeah, she wants yeah. him to see it. She wants him to fall in love with her. She wants him to know so that he can love her for who she is in all aspects of her. Yeah, I can agree with that too. I did hear some other other reasons. One that was uh, that she just forgot. I mean, that's... who is coming up with these crap <laughs> theories? Oh, the uh, you... the receptionist had her back turned. Maybe she forgot. If you dig into the deepest corners of the internet, you'll see some really weird theories. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the reason why she had forgot maybe is because it was another. It would have been a year since the incident. They'd been in hospital for over a year. Maybe she just didn't think that Scotty would have paid that much attention. <laughs> like it's, it's it's ridiculous. Scotty, <laughs> this obsessed man. I think our theories are a lot stronger than that one. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about. The scene as well when Scotty is basically dragging Judy slash Madeline up the spiral tower again when they when they get back to San Juan Batista. You got that? Is that what it is? San Juan. I was gonna say Del Sur. San Juan Batista. Batista. Yeah. Uh, and he does say to her, "Made you over, didn't? Made you over just like I made you over. Only better. Not only the clothes and the hair, but the looks and the manner and the words." And those beautiful phony trances, and you jumped into the bay, didn't you? I bet you're a wonderful swimmer, aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? And then what did he do? Did he train you? Did he rehearse you? Did he tell you exactly what to do, what to say? See, he's he's showing off all of his rage and his disappointment, and for the first time, Scotty sees the similarities between himself and Gavin. Just as Gavin trained and groomed Judy to be the Madeline who could manipulate Scotty, hmm. so did Scotty. Where he did the same to Judy in order to transfer, transform her into Madeline. And yep. the comparison of the two men, I think, is Hitchcock's way of showing that the, the seeds of evil are, are in everyone. So no matter how well intentioned one might be. Hmm. I think that's a, it was a nice little 
like spiral, spiral. again spiral so for spirals it, yeah. mate yep you're waiting for it were you? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to the end and i guess the glaring question here is did she jump did she fall or did she jump she fell she fell is that what I, you think? I reckon she fell she was happy they ha- they made up i don't think that they made up she's like they kissed oh that's making up is it well in my book it is she he's told her there's no way of coming back but then they make up right they're like cuddling and then this fucking weird nun comes out of nowhere. Like, firstly, well done to Hitchcock, because this was my second time watching this movie, mm-hmm. So, and I didn't really remember it at all. So, for most of this movie, I was seeing it as, you know, a first-time viewing. This nun scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, who is that? Is that Gavin? I'm like, what's going on here? And, um, yeah, when, uh, yeah, when it's just, I don't know. Like, I didn't like the fact that it was a nun walking out. It was... I thought it was just... Like, just so convenient. See, I don't think that they made up. Yeah, they kissed, but he he told her that it's over. He told her that it's over. Like, he, he, this can't work after all this. So you think she jumped? I think that... So, obviously... No, don't be a fence-sitter. So, obviously, the, the, the most common interpretation here is that she sees the shadowy figure of the nun. Yeah, like you said, which is super weird. And it just, it like, rises out of the ground. It doesn't even look like she's on a staircase. Or else. Yeah. What's she doing? Is she crouching in the corner? Yeah, what is there's she no, doing? There's no, there's no lift there. No. It's, it's, it was very, like, smooth, risen up. And yeah. it was Judy Madeline. She panics and she falls, fearing that that shadowy figure might have been, you know, the ghost of Madeline or something returning to avenge her murder. Like, what else would it have been? Like, what, did you did you at all think that that might have been, like, she's seen a ghost? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was very ghostly. Yeah, very ghostly. But I did read in an interview with Kim Novak that she, her take on it is that Judy actually threw herself off the tower, that she was so desperate to be loved, and that she had let the one man turn her into Madeline and involve her in a murder because she thought he loved her, and then another because she hoped he would love her. Mm. And when Scotty found out the truth, he told her it's too late. So when she cried out no... It was because she realized that she just lost her last chance and had nothing left to live for. The nun's arrival merely distracted Scotty long enough for Judy to break away and to do that to herself. And another point in that direction is that a suicide also makes sense in the relation to the Carla, Carlotta Valdez story. And yeah, she it, also it does fit su- the story more. Maybe I'm just too much of an optimist. And that's the beauty of a movie like this, is that each viewer can interpret it differently. Exactly. All good movies have that interpretation, except for the hotel scene. There's no interpretation of that. That's just terrible. No, that's poor. That's poor, Hitchcock. <laughs> if you game. So, she falls or she jumps, whatever you want to say, and then it's just, this nun's like, may God have mercy, and rings the bell, and Scotty's standing there, and it's the end. It's just it. It's over. I just thought, like, whoa, okay. Until the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> like, would it, do you think it would have made more of an emotional impact if, like, Scotty jumped out as well? You wanted him to fall. No, follow. I'm asking you... Do you think it would have made more sense or if it would have had more of an emotional impact if he jumped out too? No. No? No. What do you do you think that is a I that, think that's, that's the, the perfect way to end it, yeah. So like, what, it is sudden and jarring, but so's the death, right? Like, again, the death again. Yeah. Like spir- that movie the spiral, Dead Again. The spiral. Yeah, we get it. It's a spiral. <laughs> um no, but <laughs> the death is sudden, it's unexpected, and it's shocked Scotty, and then the credits hit. And where the audience is left sort of looking at it like, wow, you know? Well, I tell you what, it's certainly better than the alternate ending that they were, were going to go for. They had this ridiculous ending coming up after this where they're back at Midge's apartment. Classic Midge. And Midge is listening on the radio that they're pursuing Gavin in Europe somewhere for this. Like, what? What? Yeah, they, they did this because 
I, I don't know if it was ah uh, yeah it was it was in in the foreign countries they they couldn't have the idea that the bad guy won the bad guy got away yeah I did read that this was the only Hitchcock film where the killer gets away with it yeah there's no comeuppance at all for Gavin and it would have had Midge listening to this radio report and then Scotty coming into them sharing a drink and this is after. The scene at the end. So what's that implying? That they're going to get together? Yeah. Ugh, How that, boring. That's it. That's No, no. one cares about Midge. <laughs> Stop bringing up Midge. <laughs> no, but luckily Hitchcock did succeed in fending off the uh, the demands of the production code administration who were just... They really wanted this scene to get in there. But luckily they uh, they did drop that. I thought it would have... If they had that, that ending there, this would have dropped a lot for me. Mm. But luckily it's not in there and that is... Our review for Vertigo. Any last words? So, Dean, I'm interested to hear what are your final thoughts on Vertigo? Okay, so I do like this film. I think that Hitchcock's direction is, as always, very good. And I think that James's Stewart performance... James Stewart. James's Stewart. No, not James's Stewart. <laughs> Who's Stewart? <laughs> James's Stewart. I think that James Stewart's performance is underrated. As I said, I looked at a lot on this movie. No one ever talks about its performance here. I think it's really, really, really good. And I sort of like, I sort of like, I know James Stewart and how he is, and he's normally this generally really nice guy and good. In this movie, he shows genuine aggression, genuine fear, genuine obsession, and I thought it was really, really strong. King Novak as well was good, even though Hitchcock didn't want her as really in the role and said that she was miscast. I thought she was good as well. I think the movie's overrated. I don't put it anywhere near one of the best movies ever made. Yes, it's nice to go and look back at it and see the symbolism, the metaphors, the use of colour and all that sort of thing. But for me, it's a solid mid-tier movie. It's good. Play on. What are your final thoughts? Okay. So when I first watched Vertigo several years ago, I was confused. This movie was hailed as an absolute masterpiece and I just didn't see... I didn't see why. Like, was I was I wrong? Like, was I missing something? But I never went back. No, it's the children who were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I never went back to rewatch it, and in the end, I just forgot about it. And so we cut to now when when I found out we were doing Vertigo for the podcast, and I was interested to go back and really look into the film, and not just watch it, but try to understand why it's so revered. Why is it so good? Apparently, and what I found was a film that is spectacular in a technical sense. Hitchcock in the late 1950s really puts on a masterclass of innovative shooting, like with the Vertigo shot, for example, his use of color and how that exemplifies his overriding themes of romantic obsession and love and fear with separating yourself from reality and trying to get back is spectacular and Hitchcock's mind to think of all these things as genius. But in saying that, the movie itself and the story is just fine for me it does feel like it's lagging at points certain scenes like that hotel scene and even the scene at the bookstore which i said they feel unnecessary james stewart was really good as he is in most films i've seen of him but kim novak she didn't do it for me i i just really yeah i i didn't feel it with her i did like how the twist was revealed in the middle instead of the end but the ending itself for me was a little abrupt and kind of took me out of it a bit. Not as much as it would have been with the alternate ending, but it still took me out of it a little bit. Like, I just felt it just stopped, and I was I was waiting for a little bit more. So, technically, the film is phenomenal. Story-wise, it's fine. Could have been better. This is not Hitchcock's best film. 
I can think of at least three others that are better. Wait, Psycho, North by Northwest, Rear Window. But it's still a great film, and I, I am glad I got to go back and really take a deep dive into it. Much better than what I thought the first time, but not the... Not my, your favourite movie of all time. No, of course not. I was the best because the crowd loved me. All right, now it's time that we rank our movies that we've done so far. How does Vertigo fall for you? Okay, so it's obviously not as good as Die Hard and The Prestige for me. So I actually have had a bit of a battle here between if it's better than Django Unchained. So while they both are unnecessary in certain scenes, oh man. Which are you going to watch next? Which do you have more fun watching? See, the more I was thinking about Vertigo this last, what, three weeks, whatever, since we did the last one, I I really was interested to even go back and watch it again for a third time. But, man, Django is a lot of fun. Django! Django! (laughs) So, for me, it's really close. It's really close. But Django just notches Vertigo for me. Come at me, haters, all these people who think that Vertigo is just the best film ever and how dare I... Uh, say that Django's better. Dean, I feel like... There's, there's no discussion. Yeah. Vertigo is my least favourite of the movies we've done so far. Again, it's a good movie. I do like it, but yeah, not in the same um, tier as the other movies we've done. We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is, and this oh. could be it. Oh. Okay, so just the one review sent in to us this week from Dean's brother Shane once again. So Dean, why don't you go ahead and read that? Okay, here we go. This film has a lot of acclaim, with many believing it to be one of Hitchcock's best films. I think Vertigo is just a touch off being a North by Northwest or Rear Window, i.e. it doesn't quite have the same definitiveness as those two and others. Having said that, Vertigo is an excellently crafted film with a good script and performances. James Stewart is electrifying as Scotty, the retired detective, hired for one last job. Kim Novak as a mysterious Madeline is also good, but is probably upstaged by Barbara Belgedes as Scotty's old flame Midge. Are you kidding? <laughs> Trapped in the friend zone. <laughs> How do you say this? Geddes? Geds? Geddes. Geddes' performance warranted the character perhaps being included more in the century sto- in the central story than she is. Okay, so the first two-thirds of the film are all about suspense and mystery as Scotty stalks Madeline to uncover her eerie similarities with a woman who lived a hundred years ago. The film there was taking on a borderline supernatural subject matter, but once both feet were in the pond, it turned out to be a little more than a puddle. The twist, while interesting and clever has a jarring effect on the remaining third of the film. It snuffs out all wonder and magic of the past and the dead, and it becomes a straight, awkward romance tragedy. Shane, I have to disagree. (laughs) Uh, The final scene is very off-putting and doesn't feel complete. Do you disagree with that? No. Still, for the film's flaws, you cannot deny the uniqueness of the film and general craftsmanship of the filmmakers involved. It's a quality picture that is quite entertaining. But I see a lot of ways it could have been better. Thanks for that, Shane. Yep, thanks, Shane. If anyone else would like to send in their reviews for any upcoming podcasts or any questions you'd like us to answer, you can always email us at imdbjourney at gmail.com. You can always contact us on our letterbox account. And you can follow us on Twitter at imdbjourney. If you just go and search for imdbjourney on any social platforms, you'll find us. So, what's next? Okay, it's time to find out what film we're watching next week. Now, normally we do a random draw here, but I have a surprise for Dean, more of a birthday surprise. I'm going to let you choose the next movie. No way! 
Really? Yeah. It's a nice birthday present for you. You are so generous. <laughs> okay. That was quick. Yep. No, nah, I know. There was there was no uh, real pause there. Okay. The next movie we're going to do is Once Upon a Time in America. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm Here excited. Here we go. I'm excited. This is, yeah, this is a film that Dean has been begging me to oh, rewatch. I love this movie. Yeah. And I, I really feel like Hendo doesn't appreciate it like it should be. I do give it a high review, just not as high as you. Yeah. Spoiler alert for next week. Yeah. But, also, yep, I'm, I'm interested to go back and have a look at this. I'm sure that your brother Shane's bouncing off the walls as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's going to do it for our review and breakdown of Vertigo today. Please stick around because we're going to be talking uh, about a couple, couple more movies that we've been watching in the last uh, three or so weeks. But that will do it for Vertigo. podcast this is spoiler free so you don't have to worry about that we try and keep these reviews just very brief and our quick thoughts oh i'd also just like to say that we have watched it's been a, it's been a decent break since our yeah, last podcast so we have watched break. a lot of movies and it is award season yeah. so there's a lot of good movies coming out so we're only going to talk about half of the movies in this podcast and put the other half in the second podcast because I, d- I doubt for the next week we're going to watch two, like a ton of movies coming up. So let's let's yeah. spread them out. We'll only do maybe six or seven here, and then we'll do maybe another six or seven next yep. week. So, Dean, what have you been watching? I had the pleasure of watching Mother. Hmm, okay. Sorry, I'll, I'll say that again. Haven't I, got to I, it yet. Haven't got to it yet. I didn't say it right. Mother! That's better. There we go. There is there is a very prominent exclamation mark there. So, Mother. Uh, <laughs> whew. Okay, Aronofsky's latest work is polarizing. Some viewers love it, some despise it. I am definitely the latter. Okay. The story of a woman who's trying to finish building her house while her husband writes is weird. Very, very weird. It is... It's hard to watch and take it for what it is. You need to do deep, deep dives into it to fully appreciate it. And it's it's no good. Like, even trying to watch it for what it is, it's hard to get through. It is one of the worst movies I've seen this year, and I dislike almost everything about it. Oh, okay. I'm still going to watch it, because I'd like to... Yeah, yeah. you'd like to uh, contradict everything I've just said and tell me what yeah. a masterpiece it As is, usual. no doubt. <laughs> Prove you wrong. What have you seen? Okay, so I have gone back and watched two films that you have already given reviews for in the podcast here. Really? I, yeah. I went and saw Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Oh, okay. Get caught up on that. So, for the record, I'm not a Star Wars aficionado. I've seen all the films, but I really don't know much about them at all. Like, you know, the, the lore and, all, you know, I'm not... Neither a, do I. I didn't ever said you did. Yeah, but... Uh, I feel like you know more than me. Just in general, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, anyway, after I initially saw it, my first thought was that it's fine. That's it. It's all Okay, it's fine. But I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking about all the issues I have with it. I won't go into too specific detail with it. I, I want to keep it spoiler-free, but uh, like I did have, I do have issues with the film. But as the time went on since I saw it and coming to now, the movie has grown on me way more than it had after I was done with it. The score is absolutely phenomenal. 
The action scenes were very well shot and handled. The cinematography was great, especially in regards to the white planet with the red lines. You know what I'm talking about if you've seen it. Or if you've seen the trailer. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there are also some scenes that were like exquisite. In particular, a scene involving light speed. Do you know mm. what I'm talking about? Oh, I know. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's so much light speed no, in a Star Wars movie. I'm talking about the, a scene. Yeah, I know. I know what yeah, you're okay. talking about. Cool. All right. The flaws are still there for me. And in particular, the side quest we see with Finn involving another planet, I thought was really boring. It just took too long. Every time it came up, I was out of the film. Like, come on. All right, let's get back to what really matters. And also, I don't know. I guess I felt this film also took quite a turn from The Force Awakens in that it it started to feel very, very Disney to me. Really? Yeah. A lot of humor, almost borderline eye-rolling and cringy at points. I know there's humor in the Star Wars films and that, but there was just a lot of them like, oh, okay, like this is... It's kind of like a... All right, old man. Have no, you tried having no. fun when you go to the movies lately? <laughs> I... Yeah, see? More of that. More laughter. More smiling. Appreciate the humour. There was humor. some humour in it that was funny, but there was someone like, okay, come on, like, and enough of this. We're not, this isn't a, you know, a kid's, you know... A, or maybe it is. It's Disney now, isn't it? Even before it was Disney. I feel like The kid. Force Awakens was not te- really designed for, for, children. for young children. But for I feel younglings. like this one... <laughs> So anyway, I still have those flaws with it, but the positives far outweigh the negatives, and it's still a thoroughly enjoyable film. So another film that I saw that you have also reviewed on this podcast, Yep, I saw Justice League. Did you? Yeah, I did. Now, did you know you saw Justice League? No, you didn't. Okay. Yeah, I saw it very recently. Here we go. Okay, let's, let's talk about positives. Let's talk about justice. It's... Better than Man of Steel. Okay, I thought you were going to say, let's talk about positive. And now on to the negatives. <laughs> that would have been good. No, no, no. It's it's not a horrible film. It's it's better than Man of Steel. It's better than Batman vs Superman. It's better than Suicide Squad. Okay, not that Suicide Squad. If you talk about the, the, the Superman trilogy, this is the best one of the three. Yeah. It's, it is a, I, I can dumb it down to, it's schlocky fun. It's schlocky. Can you define schlocky it's, for me, please? It's cheesy it's cringy at points it's just it's dumb it's such but it's such a dumb fun time i had fun with it i enjoyed it but it's 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 like it's it's not a good film but i enjoyed it it's one of those films Fair i thought I th- you know i had so many problems with it you said stephen wolf was fun stephen wolf is he was just nothing he i don't know anything don't go into me about the whole DC universe and who Steppenwolf is and that, he was a very D-grade villain that you would see out of all those Marvel films with all those shit villains. This guy had no presence. Like, he, no presence. No presence. Was what was on... he doing? What's he there for? He with these MacGuffins of these stupid boxes. Well, I didn't even understand what, what the purpose of all this stuff was. It is pretty complicated. <laughs> it's pretty it's dumb right. for some for some minds. It's that pretty can't dumb. Understand it. I, I get. I get it. It's okay. Wonder Woman. She's she's great. Flash is funny, but you know he doesn't bring anything to the league. Like he's he's not he's he can't fight anyone. He's he saves a couple of people. Yeah, and he's there for humor. Again, not going into spoilers, but I did have a real good laugh involving Flash and and I guess when he's using his his speed and he gets an eye like someone looks at him, the eyes turn. Ah, oh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, yep, yep, I thought yep, that yep. was hilarious. That was really, really good. Yeah, that was good, actually. Yeah. yeah, again, I just wanted to just keep the spoilers out of it, but I thought the Batman 
he is very humorous in this film. Like this film is going for the humor here, which is fine. He's very, I guess, like he does nothing in this film. He's there when you, in all these action scenes. He's just fending off the the minions. That's who he is. Yeah, he I know. doesn't have superpowers. I know that, but he could have been doing something else as well. I just felt like he's Batman. Oh. He's he's the driver of this film. He brings so much more to the Justice League than just fighting bad guys. Right. Dean, didn't he, want, Dean didn't want to go into this in our Die Hard podcast, but he is a humongous DC <laughs> fan. He tried to shy away from it when he was talking about these like, these films. He's got a damn sleeve of all of his DC characters on there, so you can't say a bad word about any of these films. He he, tried, I'm not going to get into it. But, I will accept a bad word about Suicide Squad. Yeah, fair enough, man. What a horrid film. So, yeah, Justice League, not... A, I'm glad that you liked it. I liked it in the dumb sense. I'm glad that you liked it all because yep. I imagine you went into this film almost hoping to no, shit all over I it. No, I don't hope to shit on these yes, films. I hope to watch every movie and like it, and I'm glad that I did like it. But your glowing review of this oh, film is it. so far it. off it's base. Every, it's what I wanted. It's I what can't I want believe it. You can't League see movie. any flaws in this film. Any flaws I may have with it are far and vastly outweighed by the pros and joys I have of watching these beloved characters on the big screen. Again, don't mess with DC with Dean. He will crush your spirits. No, Justice League. Just like the movies. <laughs> Justice League, good dumb fun. I really hope they they do sort their way out of this uh, money issues. They haven't got like their budget, not budget mm. issues, their box office issues, and hopefully they can start swinging it back their way. Because I, I do hope they start making some much better films than I have. I mean, Wonder Woman was was fantastic, but this yeah, this be just a, qualifies there'll be a, a Wonder movie. Woman too, without doubt. But there are talks of um, like standalone Batman movie without Ben Affleck, like totally rebooting everything. And I really hope they don't do that because I think Ben Affleck is fantastic Batman. Yeah, I'm done talking about this. <laughs> Let's talk about Blade Runner 2049. Okay, Blade Runner 2049. Okay, I'll I'll get us started. Yes. It's long. Yes, it's slow. Yes, Harrison Ford might not be what you want him to be. I feel like I should have spoken because I feel like you're talking to me with what I'm about to say. But it's gutsy. This movie takes chances. It has faith and trust in its audience. This is not a film that you can watch and check your phone a dozen times throughout it. You talk about dumb fun, which you don't like. This is the opposite. No, 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 no. This is the opposite of dumb fun. So I imagine I'm expecting a glowing five-star review from you here. But if you sit down and watch this movie, you need to really commit your full attention to it. And in turn, Blade Runner 2049 will give you a superbly acted, clever sci-fi flick. It is a joy to watch. Okay, maybe joy isn't the right word. Okay, because this movie is not a fun film. Not a laugh to be found throughout which I understand is what this film is, but there are times when even a smile from Gosling or Ford wouldn't go astray. Nevertheless, it's an impressive film, even if it's definitely not a film for everyone. I kind of feel like it's this is the end of 8 Mile, where Eminem gets out all these insults about himself in the last rap, and Anthony Mackie's standing going, uh, uh, what do I say now? Because I feel like you just you spoke to me about all, my, all the flaws I have with the film, yeah. and you just shut me down. I'm like, okay, well, what do I say? I just need to repeat what you said. Just, just agree. No, I can't. So, with me, I'm not one of these people who review the original. I saw a couple of years ago, and I definitely erred on the side of no. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the original mm. either. Not really getting too invested in the characters or the story for the original Blade Runner. Happy to say that 2049 is better than the original, but I still wouldn't say it's fantastic. 
Yes, uh, it's gorgeously shot. Uh, Roger Deakins showing, again, why he's one of the best in the cinematography game. And Harrison Ford comes back to show that there's still some acting spark in there. I thought Harrison Ford was really good in this film. Uh, when was the last time he was good in a film? Uh, excuse me. Force Awakens. Come he, on. He's he's very... He's, Chewie, we're home. Oh, he's very passable in The Force Awakens. He's very passable. But my flaws of the film is I, I just didn't think the story was, once again, wasn't that great. It didn't really grab me. Ryan Gosling, he's acting like he's in what? one of those Nicholas Winding reference films. You didn't like Ryan Gosling. No, Man. I feel most of the time I feel like he's just doing that slow walk, emotionalist face. Yeah, he, he brings out the emotion in some things, but the fact that the movie is this long and you get a he lot of that... He carried this film. He's on screen for 99% yeah. of it. And he just didn't do it for me. Yeah, no wonder you didn't like it if you didn't like him. And the film... I didn't... Okay, he is good in some scenes, but there are scenes, there are scenes, more noticeable scenes where he is just... He's just there. And like you said... The film is so noticeably long. It was draining at points. I wasn't sitting there on my phone. I sat there and watched the whole thing. So still, it is an improvement from the original. And if you can get over the length mixed with the slow pace at points, you will enjoy it a lot. I did think it was a good film. It's just not a fantastic film. With It has flaws. So let's talk about Three Billboards Outside Epping, Missouri, the latest Golden Globe Motion Picture for Drama winner. What would you think of that winning? What did I think of it winning? Okay, and looking at the other nominees of Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water, Post, Dunkirk, I'm not too upset with it winning. Um, I probably like Dunkirk. I do like Dunkirk more than it, but it's it's an acceptable winner for that. It's, I mean, the movie's good, but it's not. It's really nothing special. You know, like the performances are definitely the standout in this movie like i know i've probably said that a lot but by a long way if you take out some of these amazing performances especially from sam rockwell who is fast becoming one of my favorite actors and francis mcdormand woody harrelson it's just you know his usual woodiness but um it's it's good it's it's unconventional it's different which is a positive but in some ways i feel like i felt like in some parts it wasn't going anywhere and I never really felt like it got over that, even after the credits. What did you think of it? Uh, I loved it. That was a wonderfully dark comedy with some... Yeah, it's a dark comedy. You don't think there's humour in this movie? Hold on, hold on. Let me just... We're talking about the Golden Globes here. So yeah. <laughs> okay. a, no, no, no. There's, there's, a, there's a category, Best Motion Picture Drama, and there's a separate one, Best Motion Picture Musical Comedy. Yeah. Well, so, what's hold on. No, what was nominated in comedy? Hold on. Let Get me out. See. Don't go with the Golden Globes. Oh. I, Tonya, was nominated. Um, Spoiler (laughs) alert in your review. (laughs) Okay, so, sorry, continue with your review of the comedy, Three Billboards. Just like the comedy The Martian that won a couple of years ago. That is funny. (laughs) And so is this film. Uh, It's got some knockout performances from, like you said, Sam Rockwell, as well as Francis McDormand. And, yep, Woody Harrelson is just Woody Harrelson in this film, as he is in all those movies he makes every single year. I feel like I see Woody Harrelson in more movies every year than any other actor. Even more than Samuel L. Jackson. I feel like I see Woody Allen pop up. Woody Allen. Jeez. Woody Harrelson just show up in so so much stuff. But yeah, good, complex characters with some really good story arcs. Very emotional at times, which the film does a good job setting up beforehand so these emotional scenes pay off. They don't don't just put them in there just with no background or setup. They set up these emotional scenes prior so that they pay off when they come up. I did, however, think there was perhaps too many characters in this film. There There was so many people in this film and I feel like if you just cut a couple of these characters out just uh, you have more time just to set up more focus on the other central characters and get even more 
of a story going on with them. I also felt that the ending was a little strange. I'm not sure if I found it good or not, but having said that, if I'm still thinking that after seeing it a couple of weeks later, I'm probably going to go with the fact that I didn't think it was that good. That being said, those two little flaws there, I think it's a great film. I enjoyed it a lot, and check it out. All right, uh, next we'll talk about Lady Bird. You can go first with this one. Lady Bird. This movie floored me. So true to life in regards to the small facets of how we grew up or how we grow, how we grow up with a strong, realistic screenplay that mirrors director Greta Gerwig's husband Noah Baumbach's movies, like the Marowitz stories, which came out last year, which I enjoyed a lot as well. Shersha. Shersha? It's Shersha. Shersha. Shersha Ronan. Shersha Ronan was a joy. She puts in an Oscar-worthy performance as the young ladybird, finding her place in the world as she grows up. Laurie Metcalf is in fine form as her strict but lovable mum, and Tracy Letts plays the perfect father I hope to be when I am older. I'm probably going to watch this again soon with my wife, just to give her an idea of what it's going to be like for her in the future, growing up with our two daughters, but I'll say for now that this was a fantastic film, and everyone should get out there and see it. Dean? Dean agrees with you. Yeah, I, I loved it. Like, I don't know how you couldn't love this movie. It's short, it's easy to watch, but at the same time, it's powerful, it's realistic. Shersha Ronan, as you say, is fantastic. Makes me want to check out other stuff she's done. Like Just, Brooklyn? Let's not go crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll be more inclined to watch a movie now if she's in it, because she she is effortlessly brilliant in this movie. I felt like the mother was very good. I really, really liked the choices this movie made in regards to the story not necessarily going where you expect it to and, you know, finishing in a tidy little bow. So it was a joy to watch and I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, really good film. Fantastic film. Yeah. So let's talk about The Disaster Artist. Dean, what are your thoughts on the latest James Franco film? Yeah, I really didn't know what to expect going into this film. Now that I've watched it, I'm still not really sure what I've watched, but boy, was it entertaining. The story of Tommy Wiseau trying to make it in LA is fascinating. Franco puts in a career-best performance, expertly capturing the vibe and mannerisms of Tommy. The tone of this movie is generally very comedic throughout, but it has a deceptively large amount of heart to it, and you find yourself really caring for the characters. A movie I look forward to watching again, and one that I watched with my wife, Britt, and we both loved it. Like We, we are laughing our asses off at this movie. It is... It is so enjoyable. I was, I was, I was honestly blown away by this. What did you think of it? Yeah, I was the same as you. I didn't know what to expect with this. I haven't seen the room, so I was contemplating whether or not I watched the room before it, or if I watch it, or don't even watch it after it. I decided to just watch the disaster artist. I kind of have an idea of what the room is about, and you know, it's one of the best bad movies ever. So I just watched the disaster artist, and I got to tell you. It's it's a really, really good film. It's so enjoyable. Like, Franco just gets... Uh, from what from what little I've seen of Tommy Wiseau, he gets those little nuances perfect. I don't know how true the film is. I know it's gone off the, the book, The Disaster Artist, and and by Greg Sestero's um, yeah, I'm recollections. Yeah, glad, I'm glad that it's a Greg book and not a Tommy book. Oh, <laughs> the Tommy book would have been... Just, oh, would have unreal. been a work of fiction. It probably would have been the best film. It would have been that good. <laughs> would have been the best book ever written. Yeah. No, but uh, yeah, the film is thoroughly enjoyable. It's very well paced. Yeah, I I don't know what else to say. I thought it was a great film with some great performances. Very funny. And yeah, like a heartwarming story as well about this mm. guy who's just trying to pursue his dream no matter 
how ridiculous he ends up doing it. It's it's this is what he achieved. This is what he wanted to do, and he did it. Mm. And even now. Like you see at the Golden Globes, he's up at he's up on top. He's up at the Golden Globes with Franco. With I the, love how he tried to speak. <laughs> yes, he, got no, up no, there, no. he tried to speak with Franco. Ah, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so yeah, uh, a fantastic film. Uh, one I would definitely watch again. Yeah, uh, that's it. I I also, but as I said, I did I did go back and watch The Room for the first time. I don't. Did want... it hurt your opinion of the Disaster Artist? Because no. I've I've no. watched The Room, no. and I I kind of don't see the point. I feel like I got the absolute best bits I could have got from the room from the disaster artist. You, you're not. You will go and watch the the room because you know it's so bad it's funny. Like you. So okay, here's what he's going to do, right? So I left this. I left this to the end of the podcast. But Dean and I have a bet to settle. Where uh, like I won't get into the details of what the bet was about, but he lost, and I now get to give him three films to watch <laughs> over the course of the next two weeks. Yep. And I'm happy to say that number one is going to be The Room. Awesome. Okay? Yep. Because <laughs> I don't want to talk about it yet. I want to talk about it with you okay. after you've watched it. Yep. Okay. So the second film I'm going to give Dean is the the film from last year done by the Safdie Brothers, which is Good Time. Yep. That's good. Cool. And the third film I'm going to give you, which I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to pick, but I for some reason I, I remember back in the Die Hard podcast when I did a review for a certain film... And Dean oh. said this. Hmm, I'll be sure to check that one out. Well, I'm looking forward to hear your opinions the next time. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Mark <about>. this spot. <laughs> I'm not going to check it out ever. <laughs> Mark this spot. You said he's going to watch it. You can't, you're taking that to the bank. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that I'm going to make him go. eat his words because you're going to watch The Salesman. The Salesman. Yes. So you've got The Room, Good Time, and The Salesman. So, Room, so, Good Times, and Death of the Salesman. Okay, I can do that. You're going to watch The Salesman in the room and have a good time. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, that is it for this week's podcast. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to all of it. We will see you next week for Once Upon a Time in America. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Have a good week. Bye.